Hello and welcome to River Talks by Unbound. My name is Matthew Rocky, joined again by Jonathan Brush. And today we are bringing you a little bit of a interesting topic, uh, reading. How many of you enjoy reading? Uh, there is a survey done. This is back in 2012 by the uh, Pew Research Center, and they found that the average adult reads an average of 17 books per year. However, a 2013 poll by the Huffington Post uh, found that 28% of Americans hadn't read a book in the previous year. So I think what you can draw from that, there's not necessarily hardcore evidence, but there's probably people who are very avid readers, and then there's other people on the other end of the spectrum who don't read at all. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is in this article, this article that I'm pulling from is from Kevin Lee, and it's from the Buffer blog, and he's talking about how fast people read and uh, the amount of uh, words per minute that uh, people uh, can consume uh, when they're reading. And the average American can read about 300 words per minute. And then there's a lot of variation there. So uh, it's some interesting things to think about. I personally uh, was a really big reader growing up. Uh, in the last few years, I've tended more towards audiobooks and things of that, that nature rather than the hard copy. But I know, Jonathan, you really like the physical copy, right? I do. I, I, like, I like to read a lot. And I Definitely prefer an actual physical book. I really can't have never been able to get into um, electronic readers. I've read a few things on Kindle and some uh, other devices, but I find that more difficult. Really like to hold the book. Plus, I recently, and this is fairly recent for me, I've come to start to like to write in them a lot more. I used to never mark a book. It seemed like it was kind of wrong for some reason. But in the last year, especially, um, I was in a study program. <clears throat> I did a lot of marking of books, and I find that I I now almost sort of habitually read with a pen. So, I, and I, you said you listen to a lot of audiobooks, Matthew. Do you consider that the equivalent? I mean, in other words, do you, you think that's quite the same thing, listening to an audiobook versus uh, reading the book? No, it, I, I honestly don't, don't think it is. Um, reading a book, um, it, it helps me concentrate a lot more on what's going on, and, and it, it takes a little bit more intentionality, I think, than. Uh, listening to an audiobook. I think listening to an audiobook falls a lot more into the same way as a podcast, really, um, or listening to the radio or something like that. You know, uh, what you take in is basically as much as you pay attention for. Um, they're, they're not as much of an active part um, compared to actually sitting down and reading a physical book. I like audiobooks. Um, I don't listen to them very often, partly because I listen to a lot of podcasts and partly because um... I, I prefer to only listen to them when I'm traveling and you know, have long stretches so I can finish it. And in recently, I don't travel by myself a whole lot anymore. I normally have a team with me, and so I don't really want to subject them to all to the same audiobook. But I really like listening to fictional audiobooks. I don't know that I've ever listened to a nonfiction one. Uh, I guess for the same reason, I just have a harder time concentrating and feel like I'm missing some important stuff. Whereas a fictional one, you can kind of follow along with the narrative and it doesn't have as, as much of a problem. Um, but it's always intimidating to me to look at that. I read kind of fast. And so when you look at like a fairly short book and it says it's like 12 hours of audio, I, the, the thought of stopping halfway through just drives me crazy. So I always want to wait until I have like 12 hours of time that I know I can dedicate to that. And that doesn't happen very often. So. Yeah, for sure. Well, with the whole idea of reading and books and really consuming knowledge, um, which is kind of, you know, with nonfiction, that's that's the purpose uh, of what we're going for. 
it's it's interesting to see the impacts that it has or you look at people through history who've been super successful and one of the habits that i think you generally find is just this um infatuation with reading and uh, just spending a great deal of time uh, reading books this article that i originally uh, referenced was talking about uh, warren buffett and he said quote i just sit in my office and read all day unquote and i don't know if that's uh, literally true, but it is something that I think um, is a great deal of of his success. Uh, there's another article uh, that I'm referencing here uh, called Reading Better. This is from the FS.blog. And they have a quote here that says, in my whole life, I have known no wise people over a broad subject matter area who didn't read all the time. None. Zero. What do you think uh, the equivalency is of being successful to reading and taking in new information? Yeah, there's that old adage, you know, that readers are leaders. And I've certainly heard that growing up. And like I said, I was uh, fortunate to grow up in a home that really cared a lot about books um, and certainly was our primary vehicle for entertainment. And so reading a lot as a youngster was really normal to me. And then I've kept that up. Um, so. Uh, this is one of those fascinating things, and I don't, I don't know about you, Matthew, but I'm really interested in the kinds of things that few people do, but there's really outsized results from them. Uh, so there, there seems to me to be just a, a lot of these in the world, and, and I don't know if it's increasing or not. It's, it could be that all people in every generation <laughs> think that they're increasing in their particular time period. Um, but, you know, things like I, I, being polite. Uh, it appears to me that politeness is a bit of an art form and it's it's wearing off in our culture. And so to, to me, it's it's a fairly easy thing to do to be polite to people and it pays big dividends. And I'll tell people, you know, people complain all the time, like they hate checkout people. They hate what you know, they have all these bad customer service things. I certainly have had some bad customer service experiences, but almost never face to face. Um, and uh, as an interesting example, I have terrible customer service stuff when it talks websites and things like that with the airlines, particularly. I, I massively detest the airlines and their entire system and could really do a whole podcast on that. But for all of the bad news that people talk about having with, uh, you know, flight attendants or people at the desks, I've never had a bad experience with an airline person at a desk like that. I've been frustrated with their system, but I've always got along well with the people. So and I think that's because, you know, if you're generally polite, uh, that comes back to you and it's unusual. <laughs> and so you tend to get a little better treatment. Um, and I think the same things here. This is one of those fascinating things. Um, and again, it, it yeah, you know, I've, I've got a, an advantage here in the sense that reading was normal to me. Um, but uh, there's a line from this Buffer blog that says, uh, w "Wanting to read more puts you in pretty elite company." Um, and so, if the average American reads 17 books a year, but most people, 28, well, excuse me, a large chunk don't read any, so 28 percent. Um, you know, if you read 20 books a year, you're above average. If you read 25 or 40 books a year, you're significantly above average. And uh, I think that that's kind of fascinating. Like, uh, you know, reading 40 books a year will give you a much broader perspective and a much deeper level of knowledge than most of the people you run into, which sets you apart in ways that allow you to serve better and be more effective at whatever it is that you do. And, uh, you know, again, from my perspective, that's a fairly easy ask, right? Um, but I'm just fascinated by the fact that you get such advantages out of it. Um, what's your perspective, Matthew? You said you read a lot before you do some audiobooks now, uh, but does that match your experience as well? Yeah, I think one of the things that really jumped out to me growing up, um, my parents, my mom inherited some money from her aunt when she passed away. My parents decided to use all that money 
to buy books because they felt like books would be a really important heritage that they could, you know, kind of carry on my aunt's legacy with um, that would impact all of us growing up. And that kind of became a, a motto, you know, or, or maybe a, a, not a long living legacy that was extended well beyond just us kids um, growing up to now all of us have spent, I mean, you can see behind me, I've got this bookcase and I've got another one, you know, elsewhere in my apartment where I've, you know, taken up a love of having, you know, physical books and um, being a collector of, of those things. And I think the the one thing about, you know, you can audiobooks are great. They're they're a little bit more convenient for the kind of schedule I live at, at the, you know, at this day and age. Um, but I still love the opportunity to sit down and actually read when I when I get the opportunity. And I think, you know, you can have, you know, e-readers, stuff like that. But the one thing about the physical book that I think is just super um, it, mentally, there's a lot of advantage, you know, because I can remember exactly what page or where on a page I read, you know, a quote or something that I want to remember. And coming back to it is a whole lot easier rather than listening to something and then trying to recall which chapter, you know, he was in and about how far, you know, they were into the chapter when they, you know, read what what they were trying to, you know, what I'm trying to remember. And so that jumps out to me as as one big advantage. But then the other thing, too, about reading that's practical is, I mean, you can take it anywhere. Um, and I, and I think there's, there's a huge advantage, um, to that, um, and just the adaptability that a physical book has. Now, I think overall though, what it has given me an appreciation of, uh, besides those, those elements is just the appreciation of information because you had people in, you know, the previous centuries who would die to have a book, have die to have information, you know, and now we've got this so readily available to us uh, that we can grow, that we can learn, that we can constantly be investing in ourselves in this way. And that's something that I think we take for granted way too often. Yeah. And the education model that we have at Unbound, we talk about all the time about project-based uh, education. And there's a real element there of doing like, you know, you, you can't, and, and there, you know, if you take that step further, you know, I don't know that there's any education. You don't have education unless you experience it. You know, experience is an essential piece of education. And so we learn by experience. I mean, you become wiser through life, through experience. And I don't, this is not an original idea to me. I, I read it somewhere and it's been a very, very long time. So I don't remember the source, uh, but it, and, and maybe it came from a couple of disparate sources and I'm sort of synthesizing it here together. But um, this idea that you only learn through life experience, that that is the only mechanism to learn. And then at some point, you realize that you are not going to be able to get it done. <laughs> you know, I mean, that your life is only so long and uh, you only have so much perspective. And then books being uh, this way that you can glean information and learn from somebody else's life experience. Uh, and so then this just incredible shortcut. You know, I can sit down and I can read a book in several settings and I can gain a lifetime's worth of perspective from somebody else and then assimilate that into my own life and all of a sudden have in effect, live two lives. I mean, been able to see things from somebody else's perspective. Uh, for some reason, that idea has really taken root in my mind and has been fascinating to me. And um, and I think that's true for fiction and nonfiction. I mean, clearly, if you read a biography or if you read uh, a nonfiction book about a certain thing, you're, you're gleaning information from that person's life experience. Uh, but so many times, you know, I've read fiction and it has been able to alter my perspective on the way I see things. Um, and to some extent, you know, you're gaining, uh, if... if 
you're getting an imagined perspective from somebody else's life, but it's informed by the author's life experience in some way. And uh, I just find that idea fascinating. I find it, I don't frankly, kind of intoxicating. And um, I know that I accumulate a lot of books and uh, there, there can be a, a problem here, but but I'm fascinated by getting books that teach me how to do something and then knowing that they're sitting there. Now, sometimes I read them. There are, there are books on my shelves here that I've just worn the covers off of because I've looked them again and again and actually done that. But there's plenty of books sitting over here that are just potentialities. You know, they're, they're just sitting there. Just the fact that they're there makes me feel really good that at some point I can do that. There's a an actually a, a pretty large section of, of chess books here. And uh, there's a time in my life when I was really interested in playing chess and I played it a lot. And that has been a while back and I haven't played it much recently. Um, but I just love the idea that sitting right there on that shelf, uh, you know, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, there's like 15 titles of chess and they're just a potentiality that if I wanted to get really good at chess and, and benefit from, you know, multiple different authors experience at chess, it's there and it's just waiting. And I just find that really fascinating. And that's one of the reasons I think I like physical books. And uh, yeah, if, if I'm a, if I'm a hoarder of anything, it is definitely a hoarder of books. I, I don't know that very few books come in that eventually go back out. They kind of come in and stay uh, much to my wife's uh, dismay, I think sometimes. So. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Just the total rabbit trail here here. But I think something that's interesting growing up, I always loved watching um, BTV Western. So uh, Roy Rogers, Lone Ranger, people like that. And there is this one Lone Ranger episode that comes to mind about this um, guy. And I think he was a, a, a friar or something like that. He was traveling and he got held up by outlaws who stole his chest because he told him he had all this great treasure in it. And so they get it back to the hideout and they open it and it's just full of books. And um, so, of course, to them, it's completely worthless. But I remember the whole thing that he kind of like this friars keep stressing throughout this episode when he's trying to get his treasure back is just the wealth of information um, that he realized he contained uh, within those books. And especially, I mean, this is still set, you know, a number of, of years ago, back probably late 1800s, when books were still not, you know, super common uh, compared to what they are today. Uh, and I think that's interesting. Another thing that that's interesting is when the whole topic of reading comes up, there's a lot of people who will make the argument, well, I'm just not a reader, or I'm not not that type of person. And there's an article, this is another one from the FS blog, and one thing that they say in this, they have an article called The Art of Reading, How to Be a Demanding Reader. And something they say at the end that I thought was interesting, they said, reading is like skiing. When done well, when done by an expert, both reading and skiing are graceful, harmonious activities. When done by a beginner, both are awkward, frustrating, and slow. And I think that's kind of interesting, you know, because if you're just trying to jump into, you know, reading a book and you're a slow reader, uh, kind of going back to the whole speed, you know, whatever, um, it's going to be frustrating because you feel like you can't make progress. Uh, I, I know I experienced that with like really long books that I would try to, you know, undertake when I wasn't a super fast reader, you know, uh, early on, that would be super frustrating because it felt like it took forever to read a chapter of a book. Uh, but you know, that that's something that with time and practice, it, you know, effectively mastering complicated information is not hard to do. Yeah, there's that interesting curve. I, I, I don't I've never talked about this with anybody, so I don't I don't actually know. So it'd be interesting, Matthew. But but when you read, um, do you like start reading and then you like catch the flow and then you're not consciously reading anymore? Does that make sense? Like especially a fictional book, like do you get to the point where you kind of 
you drop in and, and now you're just flowing with the story, but you're not actually thinking about reading. And if in fact you start to think about reading, you kind of pop out of the story. Does that make sense? Like I said, I've never really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I assume it's a universal experience, but I don't actually know. So. Yeah, no, that that definitely makes sense to me. Uh, and I think the other thing, too, that is worth considering, too, is it also I mean, the quality of an author is also going to play into that really a lot. You know, if it's a really good author who, you know, even in a nonfiction book has a way of keeping people engaged, you, you never feel like you're actually reading. You feel more like you're having a conversation with that person. And I think that's that can be a really interesting thing. The other thing, too, that's interesting to thing for me is with a lot of different authors that I read, especially with nonfiction, they were people who I had speak or talk. And eventually I got to the point where I could hear their voices in my head just reading, you know, and and that's kind of cool, too. So. Yeah. Well, this is I, I said earlier that, you know, there's some things that fascinate me, like there's things that you do. And if you do them, a lot of people don't. And so it gives you a significant advantage. Uh, I'm also fascinated by things that appear ordinary and yet uh, you can become extraordinarily good at them. And of course, in, in Unbound, we say a lot that a lot, you know, to be extraordinary to ordinary things is, is kind of the point. But but what I mean by that is like there's things we take for granted. And then you can kind of really lean into them and find that you can really plumb depths that most people don't know they're there. And uh, so this idea of playing a game that other people don't know, is, you know, like competing in a game that other people don't know is being played, I think is really interesting to me. And again, not as a competition, like trying to be better everybody else, but just like there's something going on there. And I find so many things about this, right? So many people will walk through a public space and be totally unaware of what's going on. And I think it's fascinating that you could do the same people could walk through the same place um, and one person could catch everything that's going on and one person couldn't. And that's the same experience, same thing, fairly mundane. And yet there's all this drama happening that is invisible unless you kind of look for it. Um, I spend a lot of time in the woods. And so the same thing. There's people that can walk through the woods and see nothing. And there's people that can walk through the woods. Matthew, you're a hunter. And, you know, you see signs and you see things and they make they make sense to you. And so it's it's there's a whole other level being played there. Um, I think that's interesting with reading too. Uh, two things I was thinking about as we were talking about that is that um, I like to run. And so running seems simple, right? I mean, everybody knows how to run to some extent. And yet in the last five to seven years, I've discovered that there's a whole different way to run. I, I completely changed. I, I ran track and cross country in high school. So I've done a lot of miles. I've run, I mean, excuse me, in college, not high school. I've done a lot of miles and run a lot. Um, and then I just found that there was a whole new way to run, like actually change the mechanics of my running um, in a way that significantly decreased my injuries and increased the pleasure of running. And I thought that was fascinating that, you know, like I just took it for granted. I didn't realize there was something to be studied there. Um, I, recently, I started riding motorcycles and I was thinking about your thing about going slow. You know, when I first started out, I was scared to even get the bike in motion. And I went riding yesterday and I kind of went around a corner and it was exhilarating. And I realized it was because I didn't think about it. I just kind of moved through it uh, because the skill has come up with that. And I find reading's the same way. But so many people, for some reason, maybe because it's an academic pursuit, but they say, oh, reading's not for me because they, they are still in that awkward skier mode. Um, and I just think, you know, there's a lot of things that people would, they wouldn't do that if they're riding motorcycles. They kind of know that eventually I'm going to get better at this or eventually, you know, and lots of other skills. But I see a lot of people bounce from reading because it just feels like they, you know, for what some oh, that's that's for other people. That's not for me. I'm not a reader, uh, but they're in that kind of awkward ski thing. And then I think about what happens if you can lean into it when you get into that flow, when, you know, and I think that there's something that's almost magical about all of a sudden it transcends the physical act of reading the words on paper. And then a story is sort of streaming into your mind or information is streaming into your mind. I think that that's fascinating the way that happens. But then, you know, uh, these articles are talking, Matthew, about speed. 
Um, you know, and just that the more you do it, the faster you get. Um, and I, I read, I don't consider myself a speed reader, but I've run to people think, oh, that's crazy. I can't believe you read the book that fast. Well, I don't know that I'm particularly academically gifted, but I will say that I'm well-practiced. You know, in other words, you know, if you do something long enough, you get better and better at it. And as you do, your speed increases, the smoothness of what you do increases. And, uh, and then, you know, in this case, it's something that gives exponential personal gains. You know, if you can read twice as many books as somebody else the same amount of time, uh, you get twice as much life experience and you just really widen that gap between you and everybody else in terms of the abilities that you have. I think that that's, it seems to me a fairly low investment, high return type of thing. And uh, those kinds of things really fascinate me. So a little bit of a, a rabbit trail there to keep going on. But I just, this, as we were reading these interesting articles, I, these articles that Matthew and I are referring to on this FS reading blog, uh, they're fascinating because they talk about the art of reading, um, reading better, and uh, the ultimate guide to how to read a book. And, you know, when I first thought that, I was like, do you need a handbook on how to read a book? But there's all kinds of different ways to read. There's the speed reading. There's different methods to read. There's different um, reasons to read and perspectives on reading. And that was really just fascinating to see something that I've taken for granted. So, oh, look, there's a whole there's a whole nother level here that I didn't know was being played. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that all kind of ties into another thing I want to touch on, and that's the whole idea of critical thinking, because I think reading can do a tremendous amount in helping us think deeper and uh, think more critically about the perspectives we're hearing, you know, what's what's being presented to us, uh, because, I mean, with anything, we can't just accept what people give us as the status quo. You know, everything needs to be thought through. Everything needs to be uh, really uh, challenged. In, in a lot of ways. Uh, there's an article, this first one that I'm referencing is why public schools don't teach critical thinking. And this is by Frank Breslin. Uh, and this article is a little bit older. It's from back in 2016. But he says the following warning should be affixed atop every computer in American schools. Proceed at your own risk. Don't accept as true what you're about to read. Some of it is fact. Some of it is opinion disguised as fact. And the last is liberal, liberal, conservative, or mainstream propaganda. Make sure you know which is which before choosing to believe it. And I, I, I don't know what what is your experience as far as public uh, schools go and critical thinking. Yeah, there, there's there's a bunch of ironies in here. Like, there's a couple of things. That I, I think it's interesting in the way it starts out. The following warning should be affixed atop every computer in America's schools. Now, there's a part of me that wonders if it's affixed to a computer, there's a little bit of a lack of critical thinking there anyhow. And, and, and that's not because I'm anti-technology. I'm profoundly not anti-technology. Um, but there is something about technology that tends to oversimplify things. I think there's a, a bigger thing here, Matthew, I've been thinking about. I was, uh, I'm getting ready to speak at a, a whole series of events in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I was writing and, and, and finishing and kind of fine tuning some content uh, today, especially. And I was thinking especially about this aspect of Unbound that is part of our program called Understand. And uh, we've done a whole series on this on our other podcast, uh, the Unbound, Be Unbound podcast. And so if you want to go over there, we can give you a, a longer kind of, um, you know, explanation of what we mean by understand. But at the heart, there's this idea. Um, and this idea is that, um, and I find that, I have to back up for a second. We live in this world that is driven at the moment by a naturalistic thinking that really prioritizes answers. And we talk about that also in our ask section of our education thing. And again, on the Beyond Bound podcast, we have something about there. But 
but but the point here is that that we then prioritize facts, right? And so um, this quote here, some of it is fact, some of it is, is opinion disguised as fact, the rest is liberal, conservative, or mainstream propaganda. Uh, an idea that I've been really thinking about a lot, and we've been talking about a lot, and we've been discussing with students a lot, is this idea that facts by themselves are pretty worthless. In fact, there's a saying, you know, just give me the facts, the cold, hard facts. Well, here's the problem with cold, hard facts. Cold, hard facts are dead. <laughs> you know, it's cold and hard is dead. And living facts are the things that are useful. And living facts only become living when they're in context. And context means story. And so if you don't understand the, the, this kind of fundamental principle that facts only exist in the context of story, or maybe a better way to say that is they're only useful in the context of story. I think that's really important. And then I would go another step and say, you know, there's only two kinds of stories. There's true stories and there's lies. <laughs> you know, and there's, there's stories that point to something that's true. And in, in this case, it's, a, it's not that there's like one story here, right? But there's stories that point to a truth, or if they're not pointing to the truth, then by definition, they're leaving something out and they're a lie. And to me, that's kind of the heart of critical thinking. And so I think a lot of these articles I read um, about critical thinking are often bemoaning the lack of critical thinking, that there's too bad that schools should do a better job of critical thinking, that there's, you know, all this propaganda, liberal, conservative, whatever in schools. I think that's kind of like bemoaning being wet when it's raining or bemoaning being hot because it's summer. I mean, th these are kinds of things that are baked into reality. They shouldn't be surprising to us. Um, but there's a way to kind of get out of that and transcend that and to understand there's a bigger picture that's happening here. And that is that there's a bigger story and, that, and there's a way to sort of sort through these things that allows you to see it as this pointing towards truth or it's not. And to me, that's a little better concept of critical thinking. And it also moves it out of this realm of like, you bad schools, you should be teaching critical thinking or you're not teaching critical thinking or you're propagandizing people. Uh, actually, it's kind of worse than that in some ways. They're missing the whole foundational point, right? No matter what you do, you could add a critical thinking course and it's still not sort of addressing the really big foundational idea, which is facts only make sense in the context of story. What is the story that's being told? And can we think about that story? And if we do, now we're really using critical thinking skills that does something. Does that track, Matthew? Does that bit of a bit of an in-depth rant there? But Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree with that. And I think within this whole thing of um, critical thinking, it doesn't it's not limited to within just public schools in America. You know, I think and public schools, I'm meaning, you know, high school and below. It's certainly something that exists at the college level, and it's certainly something that exists in other places, too. Uh, there's this other article that I'm, I've been skimming over. Um, called How Educators Can Actively Work Towards Improving Students' Critical Thinking Skills. And this is written by a Pakistani individual who I'm not going to attempt his name because um, I think I would butcher it. But um, Tarika Quill or something like that. I'm not sure. So forgive us for, for butchering that name. But you know. yes, something like that. Um, but he says something about in, in Pakistan, most teachers in Pakistan enter the profession of teaching straight out of college without any training or knowledge of modern teaching methods. So critical thinking is an alien and newfangled concept for them. But one of the things that he says is the answer to this is what I find interesting. Uh, to develop critical thinking in students, first of all, it is required to promote project-based learning. 
Figuring out and trying to solve real-world problems makes the student get out of the classroom and into the real world. Project-based learning is the best way to introduce any knowledge, concepts, and ideas that motivate students to learn and develop critical thinking skills. Students should be able to develop their own projects, define goals, define their learning plan, and communicate achievement to a broader audience. When students can make choices and direct their own learning, they become more dedicated students. Any teaching strategy that develops critical thinking is project-based learning, which I feel like that comes straight out of Unbound. We apparently have an Unbound outpost in Pakistan, so yeah. <laughs> but I, no, I think it is interesting what, what he touches on there, and that's the fact that so much of the public school system and just education system as a whole has been built around the hypothetical, um, or it's been built around a, 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 a framework that says, you know, this is how life exists, accept it as is, and now here's how you put everything together within that. And there's no driver incentive to really ask questions, to push back on things, to, you know, to really um, figure out things and, and kind of going back to the whole, you know, living facts versus dead facts. I think here's something that's interesting. If, you know, let's just say you take somebody's death, you know, and you presented somebody's, you know, the facts of he died in Los Angeles. He died at 844. He died wearing a red shirt, you know. What what what's useful about that? You know, now, if that's in the context of a, of a story or if that's in a context of uh, he was killed at 844, all of a sudden there's tons of questions. Well, how do you mean? Well, you know, how was he killed? What do you mean he was killed? You know, and, and questions um, are, are are should be what drive um, students to learn. But right now, I think within the framework, there's no incentive to really do that. Well, I think it's fascinating. And, and this um article about critical thinking skills we just referred to uh they're talking about this idea of project-based education uh the one we talked to or talked about earlier um by uh i'm trying to remember his last name here was it uh, breslin by frank breslin uh there's a real theme in here kind of reacting against particularly standardized testing um in fact at the last (laughs) sentence only too willing to sacrifice children to this strange new god of standardized testing um There's a lot of reaction to standardized testing in the country, but I think people don't understand sort of why they're reacting. You know, I mean, I'm not sure if they really understand what's going on. There's something instinctive. They know something's different. And this just gets to a point that we talk about again and again and again, which is this fact that education's fundamentally changed. Um, How we process knowledge is fundamentally changed. And so uh, these are things that are working on old paradigms. This idea that it's really, really critically important to put a bunch of answers in somebody's head. And that if you put all those answers in there, that they're going to use them. I, you know, I, I, you get to the point you're almost a little frustrated and you say, how, how much more information, how much more data do we need to show that that's, that's absolutely clearly not working? Uh, that an answers-based paradigm that says just put stuff in is not enough. Uh, and, and there's two aspects here. I mean, first, we say, you know, in, from our perspective, that it's a questions-based paradigm that's really critical here. You have to know it's much, much, much more important that you be able to ask good questions than it is that you know all the answers. And that every time you ask, you get an answer, it gives you a better place to stand to ask a better question. And it is an ongoing process. It's a lifelong learning process. And things like project-based education um, are really a f- almost a physical manifestation of iterative thinking. And iterative thinking, especially in the business world, is the standard now. And, and if you f- fail to realize that, you're just crippling people from an educational standpoint. 
And then this uh, bigger idea that, you know, just a collection of facts is just not useful. <laughs> you know, we can we can fill our kids' heads full of facts, uh, but they won't do anything with that until they understand how those facts connect to a bigger story. And uh, and then, you know, as people of faith, we would say, and it's really, really important that they are pointing on the right, on the right track to the right story, that they understand that there's a true story and then there's lies, either because it's incomplete or because leading in the wrong direction. And uh, that is where critical thinking becomes absolutely essential uh, to be able to give a student or give any person the ability to ask those questions and say, is this true? Where does this logically lead? Does where this lead, is this a place that I want to go? Is this a place that everybody ought to want to go? Why or why not? And what are we going to do about that? Uh, those kinds of questions just seem in such a frustrating way not to be taught, not to be considered, and in some cases almost flat out banned um, because you don't have time or because there's um, you know some agenda going on that's, that, again, is all about kind of shoving facts into heads and saying, this is education. If I can push facts in and they can spit facts out, this is education. And I think, first of all, that's boring. And secondly, I just think it really misses the point. Um, and there's something much more exciting and much more rich and much more um, engaging that we could be teaching our students in if we would just sort of shift our perspective a little bit and realize what we ought to be doing. Teaching people how to ask questions, uh, teaching them how to seek truth, um, teaching them how to look for those things, and then giving them an appetite to consistently go after them. And if that happens, uh, some really exciting stuff comes from that. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, one example that comes to mind, um, as you say, all of that um, kind of a more humorous end. There's a guy who painted half of his car red and the other half blue. And one of his friends came over and he's like, why would you do that? He's like, so if I ever get in an accident, the witnesses can't, well, just constantly confusing themselves. And, you know, it's kind of funny to think about, you know, of course, if you're on one side, oh, it was a red car. No, it was a blue car, you know. Um, but I think in the way that the parent, you know, the, the whole paradigm of, of learning and, you know, the answers based um, would look at that is they would see that situation and they would see people, you know, contradicting themselves and, you know, coming up with two vastly different stories. And I think the answer, the quick answer would be, well, there is no absolute truth, so we're never going to know. Now, I think if you're all of a sudden looking at it from the opposite perspective of, no, there is truth that can be found. And we have to ask the questions to figure that out. Eventually, those people asking the questions are going to find the truth and they're going to get to the point where everything makes sense and they can understand, you know, what, what's happening and, and really what's going on there. Um, but I think it's stopping short of that and accepting, you know, what other people tell you is really hurting um, from really finding the truth in the long run. Yeah. And, and just to kind of tie back to our earlier conversation about reading, um, this is again, one of those things, right? If, uh, Education is education. Everybody knows that education means going to school and putting stuff on tests. And, you know, then you get marked for how many you got right and how many got wrong. And that's what it is. And and that's one of those things that, you know, it's it's a taken for granted idea. That's what everybody thinks. And then it's like, well, if you lean into it, is there something more? And 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 then all of a sudden it's like kind of like my running, right? Like everybody's had a run. And then my body mechanics were completely transformed by running this new way. And that changed everything about my running. And I think the same thing happens with education, right? If you think that there's this answers-based paradigm and it's all about, you know, an arms race to figure out how many st things you can stick in your head and then stick back out in a test. Um, first of all, it's no wonder that that looks so unattractive to people. But secondly, you know, it is an education after a fashion, 
but it's a shell. It's a hollow shell of an education. It's an education that's not particularly adaptable. It's an education that's not expandable. It's an education that wears out. Um, and then, you know, you shift and say, well, yeah, but if you just change the mechanics here and we talked about a questions based uh, system and that, you know, it was more important to ask good questions and to know all the answers and that that's a process and that's a, a discovery and that's an expedition and that is about you indulging your curiosity and it should be in some ways intoxicating and interesting and it leads to reading and it leads to asking questions and it leads to getting perspectives from other people's lives and then applying them to your own and constantly thinking about that and reflecting on that. That all of a sudden is something that doesn't wears out. That's that doesn't wear out. That's something that renews, uh, that gets uh, more and more, uh, you know, worn in and more uh, useful as it goes along. That you build expertise in it. That it stays living and and it's driving you forward. And it's interesting and it's engaging and it's not dry and it's not dusty. And that's an education that becomes a a living sort of driving thing inside of you that radically changes who you are what you can do, how you can serve other people, how you relate to other people, how you understand your place in things. And then if you attach all that to this idea that, you know, it's not about facts, but it's about a story. Well, you know, that just begs the question, what's my place in the story? What's the story about? Uh, what's the end of the story? And, and what comes after the story? And, um, you know, I think, again, it just takes, you know, well, I'm just living my life. No, but you're not. <laughs> you're part of a really big story. And, and, and you figuring out your place in the story is a really critical element to it. And uh, all of a sudden, your entire existence is infused with meaning and excitement and interest and discovery and questions. And, you know, it's going to take you a lifetime to figure those things out. I, you know, I, it's, one seems to me pale and hollow and fragile and boring. And the other seems, you know, full of life and exciting and interesting and engaging. And for the life of me, I can't understand why we keep trading one for the other. <laughs> you know, why we keep, we keep, uh, you know, it seems like an entire culture keeps uh, returning to the, the stale dry well uh, when we say, hey, uh, literally, in our case as Christians, there's living water over here. Um, and can we interest you? And those who are, uh, all of a sudden, everything changes. And, and it's a whole new perspective. It's a whole new understanding. And it's a whole new reality. And uh, I, why, why would you go back to the desert when you could live um, in the oasis, right? So. Well, that's a great note to end on as we wrap things up for this week. I do want to mention one other thing, though, um, kind of going back to where we started with reading. Uh, maybe you don't know of good books to read or a good place to start with all of that. We would love if you want to contact Unbound. Uh, we've got tons of people who would be happy to recommend uh, books on a wide variety of areas. And I know Faith and Ashley, who do a lot of the work on the back end of this stuff for finding articles for River Talks, uh, they would have uh, tons of book to, uh, books to recommend as well. So what 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 would be your guess, uh, Matthew? We can ask them later. How many books? OK, what was the average? What did we say? Uh, 17? Is that right? 17. Yeah. Or 12. Yep. So 17, 12. OK, 17, 17 books. Uh, what do you think the total amount of books that Ashley and Faith have read in the last 12 months um, what do you think? What do you think that number is? I, I would say upwards of a couple hundred. Yeah, my my guess is between 350 and 400 between the two of them. Um, so uh, just uh, just as an interesting note, uh, they and, and by the way, in case you were wondering, that's way, way more, more than I read <laughs> in a year. And so uh, and, and Matthew and I together are probably anywhere close to that. Um, but literally, uh, the, the, the team that does the research for this and finds these articles for us and helps us think through some of these issues. Um, yeah. They're able to do that to some extent because collectively they read three, four hundred books uh, a year. And uh, so, yeah, if you need any recommendations, that 
three or 400 books that covers a wide variety of disciplines and interests and subjects. And uh, so, yeah, let us know and we'll be happy to share some of those reading lists. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for joining us here on River Talks. We'll see you next time.